Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. This is the G section of the L software series, the L for libraries. I'm gonna try to get through it pretty quickly because I want to talk about some philosophical topics uh, relating to last week's episode after the coffee break. So we're just gonna try to get through this G section really quick. First one, Gammon, G-A-M-I-N, Gamin. Uh, it's a minimalist FAM replacement. What is FAM? FAM is File Alteration Monitor. Sadly, the documentation for Gamin is not great. It keeps, it just, it, there's a whole section in the documentation that just says it's no different than FAM, use FAM documentation. It's terrible. So FAM FAM was an SGI computing library to check to see if files had been, had changed recently for any reason. And then, you know, especially networked file systems. If a file on a networked file system had changed, then maybe your application would need to know about it. So as a developer, I might use, or I might have used FAM to ensure that my my application is notified every now and again when an important file has changed. If you're a user, then you might get an alert. Hey, this file is updated on 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 this file system. Would you like to up update it in your in your current workspace or or whatever? So or or I can't save this right now because the you know the file that I'd be saving back to has updated since you last saved. Whatever, however you want to handle it. I, I see this is kind of thing in like Caden Live, for instance, doing some video editing, you throw in a graphic and you look at the graphic and you think, that's the wrong aspect ratio. I better take it out to Gwen View and crop it to 1920 by 1080 or whatever you're editing in. So you do that, you come back to Caden Live, guess what? The graphic has already updated itself right there within Caden Live. It's really, really slick, really nice. You don't even have to tell, you don't have to like right click on it and open an external editor. You just go to your file system, you change the file out from under Caden Live, and it it adapts. And I'm assuming it's using something like Gamin or FAM. I, I that didn't actually verify, but that's, that's the idea. It's a useful thing, and it's a really great example of poor documentation. I've said this before and I've been wrong, but I, I will say on disk, on the on the, the, the stuff that ships with Slackware, so whatever source code the the the, the home page is actually missing. I, I went to the gnome.org slash tilde slash um the the, the 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 developer maintainer's name slash gamin and uh, it's it's 404 because I think Gnome migrated most of their stuff to a git uh, one of their own, you know, uh, GitLab instances. So that's not there, but uh, the, the the documentation on the drive that you get with the, you know, in the package is really, really poorly done. It just, it keeps referring to FAM. It keeps saying, do it like you did with FAM, or it's different from FAM in this, well, it doesn't say in this way. It just assumes you're reading this documentation only because you're familiar with FAM. And that is just a such a classic mistake of documentation that we all make, uh, but we just think, oh, everyone knows such and such. But the problem is that once you've pushed your thing out into the public for, for public use and they start using it, then it's quite probable that someone will discover your project and not know the previous project because they're new. They just came in. They just walked in the door. You can't just keep saying, go go talk to FAM for the documentation because nobody knows what that is. Well, some people do, but not everyone does. So yeah, really, really bad documentation, uh, unfortunately. But anyway, Gamin, very useful library, really makes the computing experience smooth because you you don't you know you don't have conditions where you're overwriting someone else's changes or or you don't have to go and refresh you know quit an application and then reopen it. Uh, the the notifications happen and the application developer knows that the notifications will happen and can plan for it accordingly. GC, the garbage collector library. This is the Broem Demers Weiser Conservative Garbage Collector. 
Garbage collection in programming is pretty important, especially on these really, really low-level applic- uh, uh, programming languages like C or C++. It's because you're putting things into memory spaces in those programming languages, and there's nothing in in, in there's no, nothing anywhere in your code that that that's that that sort of detects when you're done with a thing and then frees up that memory and that can be bad that can lead to uh weird errors where something partially overwrites that memory address or something wants memory and doesn't think that it can take it so you you have to you have to be careful about that and one way to do that is to use a garbage collector which monitors the locations of of variables and sort of the scope of variables and of of information in your in your application figures out you know as it's compiling if we've reached this point will there ever be any circumstance where that variable or that memory address where we put that one variable are we done with that forever now have we received it into the next function and now we don't need it in that space like how what's the lifespan of this information that we're putting into memory? The garbage collector library tries to figure that out and collects the garbage, throws out the garbage when it's no longer required. Programming languages being designed today tend to have this sort of thing built into them. It's something that's kind of architected, if you will pardon the jargon use of of architect as a as a verb uh it's sort of architected along with the rest of the the uh, of the of the process it's assumed well you're writing this code you're going to be using memory we'll figure out like we'll we'll we'll, we'll take a look at at the memory space and get rid of it when it's no, no longer needed so things like python java um probably rust i, I forget uh, i haven't really used rust a whole lot uh but you know these these sort of i guess new style of programming languages they they take care of that for you so you don't really have to think necessarily about garbage collection with those those languages this library gc attempts to manage that for c and c++ programmers now there are c and c++ mechanisms for garbage collection gc is is sort of a replacement for them with with more features than what they have, so it's just trying to improve upon something that people are already doing, just making it easier to do. Next one is GCR, has nothing to do with garbage collection, instead it's GNOME Certificate Ring, maybe? I don't know what GCR stands for. Couldn't find it in the documentation. Documentation's pretty sparse, it's basically documenting the developer side of things, it's just a, a big list of classes and functions and things like that. So GCR, it really, I mean, you're not going to use it directly, probably, especially not on Slackware, which doesn't ship with the GNOME desktop. So there is a viewer that you can launch. I don't I don't see the value in it personally. That doesn't mean there isn't value. It's just I didn't I didn't see the point. But uh, if you go to GCR-viewer, or rather if you type in GCR-viewer, then you get to see, well, a, an empty window. Now, if you have, let's say, a um, certificate somewhere, then you could view that within the with it within the within this viewer and i guess the value there is that you're not seeing it in the terminal um and i i guess you see like notation uh i don't know where to tell you exactly where to find a certificate on your system but if i had to guess there would be one in slash etc slash pki slash tls slash certs and then you could probably maybe i don't, I, I don't know i have various certs on my system that you know probably came with the system or maybe came with like firefox or something and then some for work so i don't know what would be on your system to be perfectly honest but if you look around through etc you would probably find a certificate that you could look at they they often end in dot pem or uh, that's pem or dot uh, CRT or things like that. So you can look at a certificate. You launch it with GCR-viewer, and it shows you the the data contained within that certificate. You're not looking at like a 
jumble of binary characters. You're not looking at long strings of letters and numbers that make no sense. You're seeing things like the the issuer of that certificate. You're seeing the uh, the expiry date of that. And then if you click on the details link here, uh, you get more information like the subject name, the organization, the organizational unit, the common name, and so on. All this information just around literally who issued that certificate. And I guess I guess that's the value, that you get to see it in in a window all its own. You get to see all the sort of the metadata about the certificate extracted away from all the other stuff. Now, you actually do get to see the other stuff, too. Uh, it does present that to you, like the, 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 the binary, you know, code of, of what's contained within that certificate. What's a certificate good for? Well, it's a, good for a lot of things. It, it'll do things like, well, there's this big certificate cartel around SSL and TLS where a bunch of people with lots of money purchase certificates and then those certificates get shipped with like Firefox and Chrome and then when you go to a website in Firefox and or Chrome or Chromium then your browser knows to ask for to to see the certificate the the SSL or TLS or whatever certificate of the site that it's visiting if that certificate matches the certificate that the web browser has or not matches but 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 is the is the counterpart to the certificate uh that the browser has, then the browser declares that site as a trusted location. Why is it trusted? Well, because it is it is assumed that the the owner of that certificate has that certificate placed on a secure location on their server and is able to 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 display that certificate to people who have the other part of the certificate. You can think of it as a lock and a key, or really almost as a key and a lock, um, or a puzzle piece, two puzzle pieces that fit together. It's assumed that they're keeping their private certificate safe on their server, and that if anyone were to try to mimic their website, for instance, even if they could get it to look exactly the same and to get a, a URL, maybe, maybe they even took over the URL. Like, they're not even doing, like, one of those, oh, it's, uh, it's, it's the FSF, but instead of FSF, it's, uh, SFS, and, and they're hoping you don't notice. Uh, no, it could be the same domain. If they don't have that certificate, then then they're not the same people behind that website as the people you think are behind that website. It's a lot like GPG or PGP. It's a lot like um, SSH keys, where you've got a private key all to yourself that you never share with anybody, but then you've got a public key that you just throw onto every server you ever, ever visit, and then you can sign into that server because it's got the public key that matches your private key. That's why I say it's... It's a little bit like having a, a lock and a key, and you distribute all the keys. You give 30 keys out to everybody you know, and you, you people think, oh, that's crazy. Why would, you, why would you give away the keys to your lock? Well, you wouldn't do it to your front door of your house, but if it's a little lockbox that you own, then you could go to that person and say, hey, if you've got the key, then I trust you to open this lockbox and view this website or whatever. So it's it's a little bit like that. You're the 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 people the, the organizations that can afford to purchase an SSL certificate that's universally recognized. They do that and then everyone and, and then they send out with every copy of the browser, you get a copy of the key. The thing is that only that website, that organization, is the only one that holds the lockbox to which that key is is any good. So if you go to a website and say, okay, I'd like to unlock the lockbox now, and your key doesn't fit into that lock, then you know that that's not the website you thought it was. Same idea goes for, you know, certificates for v uh, VPN sign-ins, sign uh, like I said, SSH keys, things like that. So the SSH key thing is is managed by OpenSSH. It's got a whole little system. It's got an SSH uh, agent that runs, and you've got configuration files, or not agent, but a server that runs. Um, I guess it's technically an agent. Uh, you've got local SSH configuration files and and copies of, of keys and GPG of course is is run by the GPG agent so whenever you're when you're looking at at something that's encoded in GPG your your system knows what your default keyring is and knows what to compare that that file to 
in theory, and so on. Other certificates are managed on the system level, and that's where GCR steps in. It can do things, it can manage all this kind of system level certificates that apply to all users. So that includes things like website authentication, or not authentication, but um, secure socket sort of a Com uh, what is it? attestation? I don't know if it's actually attestation, but yeah, uh, confirmation, uh, verification. There we go. Uh, and also for like smart cards, things like that. Like if your laptop has some kind of mechanism by which you you have a physical key that you're that you you have to slide into your laptop in order for it to turn on or wake up, then then this is the, the, this is one system that could manage that. This was written for GNOME, so I guess in theory it has a bunch of GNOME-ish integration. Personally, um, I don't know that I'm ever using GCR. I probably am because it's it's got a bunch of GTK integration, so probably things like Firefox probably use it. I don't know for sure, but it's here on Slackware probably for a reason. I'm assuming some GTK applications are using this. Let's talk about GD now because that's next in the list. GD stood for GIF Draw, G-I-F, like the old image format that people still sometimes use for animation because it's a layered format that cycles through layers by default when displayed. Anyway, GD doesn't really stand for that anymore, I don't think. Maybe it stands for graphics draw, I don't know. But GD is just a library now, libgd.org, and it is uh, for C, uh, it could be used for PHP, probably for other stuff, I'm not sure. But GD is, um, it, it draws images to a screen. And on the one hand, that seems really basic, but on the other hand, if you've ever tried drawing graphics in code, you'll realize there's just, you, you just have to have libgd or something like it. You, 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 you can write your own, but then you're literally writing a library to draw an image. And I mean, surely someone's done that before. And yes, of course they have libgd. So I wrote a, a, a little program to, to draw, to, to render a JPEG before. And it, because it was, it was a practice assignment in Java, in a Java course that I took. And it was one of those things where you, you, you you, you know, you're, you're opening a file, by, by which I mean you tell your programming language, okay, access this file. Place your little imaginary programmer cursor at the first, at the zeroth byte. And then, okay, let's see, I think this is a JPEG. Okay, so we'll go six digits, and that'll be, that'll be the first part of the information. And then, and then go to the next six, and then go to the next, or, or eight, or, you know, whatever. Um, and you're just, you're just reading numbers out. And then you have to, like, map those numbers to something else. Like, okay, well, I've got this value here, so that must mean that this color of pixel is supposed to be displayed. Okay, well, cycle through that until you reach the end of the file, and then draw that to the screen. So, it, and, and that's just assuming you know, that's for one format, for for one well-documented format. If you want to draw more than just the format that you chose, JPEG or, or whatever, then then you have to write a separate function to display, you know, to decode a different format, a different set of seemingly random numbers. So, I mean, again, yes, you could do that, but, I mean, do you really want to do that? Probably not. All you wanted to do was do a comic strip viewer as a demo application. It's did you, you didn't want to have to write the library to display the image any more than you want to write the 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 uh, the framework to render the window and window decoration and the close button up in the top right or the top left wherever you keep your close button. GDM, I think it's called. Yeah, GD no, sorry. GDBM is the GNU database run uh, routine. This is the next one in the list, by the way. GD is, is, I'm done talking about that. GDBM, or GDBM, is the GNU version of some uh, Unix so-called DBM routines. These were written, th these are early things. They were written by, like, Ken Thompson back in 79, and uh, it was 
It was given the name Database Manager, and its purpose was to sort and organize data in a database-like structure, a key-value database, essentially. Uh, it's, it's an early example of a NoSQL system. This is quoting straight out of Wikipedia now. But the, the idea was that, you know, you have key and value um, pairs, and then as a programmer, you, you could create these, these little databases easily and then reference that data when you need them, when you need it. GDBM is just the GNU version of that. I'm sure it's very similar to the original. I don't know, never used either the original or the GNU version. But, you know, I mean, GNU, that's how it got started, right? It just it looked at Unix. It said, okay, we need a, a program that creates and accesses key value pairs, that's what we'll do. Okay, we need a, a something to search regular expressions. Okay, that's what we'll do. And they weren't looking at the source code. That was the problem. The source code wasn't available. Or maybe it was, I don't know. Um, but they were they were experiencing it at from from the the perspective of developers and users. Well, if I do this, that does that. Therefore, in my re-implementation of it, when a user does this, I need to make sure that my code does that. That's how GNU was, that, that's, that's the foundation, that's the founding principle of GNU. Just act like Unix. Next up is GDK-PixBuff2. It's an image library used by GTK plus version 2. It provides a number of features. It's got the GDK PixBuff structure for representing images. So again, this is kind of G libgd territory again. Uh, it, it does, it, 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 it displays images, and as a programmer, that's valuable because that means you don't have to. You don't have to sit there and parse out all that stuff. Someone else has done it once, and everyone else thereafter benefits from that work. GDK PixBuff 2-xlib is used to be part of GDK ProtoBuff 2, but they, they broke it out because uh, the API for xlib is being deprecated for for this library. So and the documentation says if your if your code depends on uh the xlib data types or the, the xlib library then you're strongly encouraged to port away from it. It isn't explicit in the documentation that I can find, but I'm I'm assuming that the the idea is that you'll be porting over to Wayland. Wayland being the next generation of graphic uh libraries for or a graphic server for a Linux system. But by graphic server, I mean the thing that draws interactive images on your screen. The reason why you can see a desktop and see a mouse cursor, that sort of thing, see windows opening. Those are, that's being served by a graphical interface application of some kind or a set of libraries called, um, or partly driven by xlib. Wayland is the new framework for that. Wayland is going, is on many Linux distributions, Wayland is actively providing the, the graphics to the screen. It is not on my Slackware system, but it is on my RHEL laptop. Now, you can still launch x, you know, Zorg, based applications within Wayland, so it, it, it isn't a, it, it's a, it's a quite a smooth transition, or, or I guess as, tr as smooth as, as you can hope for it to be. I mean, I think there, there have been issues here and there, probably, not personally, but I, I, I imagine there have been problems out there with, with the transition from Wayland to X, or <laughs> X to Wayland, but this is part of that. This is GDK ProtoBuff2 saying, hey, Xlib support on the way out, start start updating your your stuff. Next up is Geggle or G E G L. That's the generic graphics library is what G E G L stands for. Oh, the only thing I know using G E G L and that's not to say the only thing using it. It's the only thing I personally know of using this is GIMP and it uses this for well for what it's designed which is the to to provide the ability to work on like non-destructive work on an image where your image is is larger than the ram buffer you have available to store your your changes it does this through some magical system you know with gegl and uh, babel b-a-b-l to libraries that 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 do a lot with do a lot of heavy lifting in GIMP for for, for all, all the image edits and and GIMP can get very very large surprisingly fast in in image 
that you bring into GIMP. I mean, first of all, just consider that a compressed image is these days at least five megabytes. And then you're you're opening that in GIMP and you're you're trying to get access to a lot more than than what's preserved in the image. Like you want you want color space outside the spectrum of that compressed color space. So you, you're, you're moving this image into, into a larger uh, sort of environment where you can work, and then you start adding layers, and, and that gets really, really expensive. You, you start putting layers on layers on layers on layers, you start grouping the layers together, you start doing all these, you know, you, you're, you're doing like non-destructive edits on a different layer, you're doing a layer mask, uh, all kinds of different things that you can do in GIMP, and there's a lot of it. The, it, it gets really big. I mean, if you save it out as a .xs, uh, .xcf file, then it, it can be huge for just a fairly common uh, image. And that's, I mean, that's not just GIMP. That's on Krita. That's on any any photo application, any photo editing application. It, it's, it's a lot of data that we're asking these applications to handle, and you want to see it happening, like, right now. And thanks to GEGL and BABL and, and all the different libraries that GIMP uses, we've got really cool features in GIMP now where you can you can do a drop shadow and, and you can kind of, you can see the drop shadow moving as you change the angle of lighting. You could do a, a side-by-side comparison of a Gaussian blur and so on. You know, like you've got these real-time kind of interactions that in old versions of GIMP and, and certainly old versions of lots of different photo editing applications, although GIMP was a little bit late to the party, to be honest. I mean, it, it really, it, I'm, no critique there, developing an amazing photo editor is probably not easy. So, but, but the like, people in other applications were, were doing things in you know, sort of real-time responsiveness before people in GIMP were. But GIMP caught up, I think, I think in no small part because of GEGL. Uh, and GEGL, the package itself, let's, I think it's just a bunch of header files and libraries. Yeah, header files and, yeah, libraries. Yeah, my memory served me correctly. So it's a bunch of header files, a bunch of libraries. So libraries are the things that are actually, that, that, that are compiled, that, that GIMP is compiled against if you're using GIMP off of Slackware. I don't think I am. I think I might be using GIMP as a flat pack. I might not be. I can't remember. Um, and then obviously the header files are the things that you would use if you were going to use, if you were going to, uh, use that library in an application of your own devising. GEXIV2 is a wrapper, a G object based EXIV2 wrapper. We've talked about EXIV2 and how I don't actually use it. I use a EXIF tool, which, if memory serves, I don't believe is included in Slack, where I think I was saying that I got that from slackbuilds.org, but uh, gxiv2 ships with uh, some include files, so some header files, and then uh, some uh, a Python wrapper for Python 3 and above, which is nice, uh, and I think that's about it. So if you were to try to use exiv2 functionality within an application that you were writing, you could use gxiv2 to do all the things that exiv2 does, which is like read all that exif data, write back to the data, and so on. So I could imagine someone using this in an application, in, in like a photo viewer application. Or I guess anything that needs to give feedback on on the metadata about an image. All right, next is I don't think we're gonna get through. That. I think there are more G's than I real. Yes, there are. There are so many more G's than I realized. I thought G was a small section. I must have been thinking about D or F. Okay, anyway, uh, I think it's probably time to talk about GIFLib, and then we'll have some coffee. Uh, I started that sentence before I saw GIFLib. So GIFLib is a library to load and save images using GIF, that is the Graphics Interchange Format. GIF was introduced way back in 1987, I think, by CompuServe. And as I say, it's it's relatively popular still today, really just for its animation ability. Which, I mean, I say animation ability. It's really just because by default, a GIF cycles through its layers when it's displayed. That That's the default behavior of, of GIF, at least on a, a web browser and, and lots of things that acknowledge that that's the expected default. So people use GIF as, as the delivery mechanism 
for for that. And that's great. I mean, that's really cool. It's great that that's that that is available. Honestly, PNG is supposed to be able to do that, but you never see animated PNGs. I mean, you do, but I mean, we don't say, "Oh, send me an animated GIF of that." That sounds really funny. No, people say, I mean, animated PNG of that. No, we say an animated GIF because that's the niche that GIF has has solved. So that's cool. GIFlib makes sure that your system understands what a GIF is. You need this. You need this to program something that that's going to read a GIF and 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 display it to your user. You need it. For, well, someone needed it to make sure that your web browser probably. I mean, I don't know for sure that this is what the browsers are using but you know like these are the libraries that make that possible all right let's go take a coffee break we'll come back and really finish off last week's episode interestingly let's go get coffee I have my good old store-bought house blend, unintentional house blend coffee. It's from the 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 container-free store where you go in and you fill your own containers. And they always, I don't know, the one that I go to lately never has enough of anything in the containers. I don't know why they do it this way. I mean, they must be aware of it. But they, they only ever fill anything halfway up. So whenever I go with my one big kg bucket for uh, coffee beans, I, I end up having to mix two different kinds together. They're, they're the same price, so it's not a big deal. But I have to basically just make my own blend because they never have enough of one. It's very strange, but it's very good coffee. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, this has been sort of an all over the place. I, I, I think I might have some of the summer uh, blend in here as well from Flight, Flight Coffee because uh, yeah, there's all kinds of notes throughout this thing. So I don't know. This is a one-of-a-kind house blend. It will never exist again because I don't know how I got here. But anyway, it's very good. So let's talk about last week's episode a little bit. I talked about the concept of, of sort of open source and community. And specifically, I asked several times what the win condition of open source was. And I observed lots of times at how nobody ever really defined the win condition for open source. And by win condition, I mean, how do you know when you have won? And that's what we're facing right now within the open source community, I think. I think a lot of people are feeling like we have won. And a lot of other people are thinking that we've won so much that we've gotten a lot of our culture sort of stolen away from us. And that doesn't feel good. So, have we won? Well, if you're talking about open source, I, I think in a way, in a way, we've gotten close to the win condition. But again, we don't have a win condition, right? Like, open source is a methodology. It is, it is a methodology of developing software. That's all open source is. It has a certain set of requirements, which you can find on opensource.org slash... OSD, the open source definition, and as long as you fulfill that definition, then you can be universally recognized as open source. So in those terms, that means that open source, if you count up all the open sources and you count up all the closed sources, then the one with the most, the, the biggest number wins because that's how things work, right? More, more of it means they won. It's a football game. And this is, unfortunately, I think, how we view a lot of things in the real world. It's just, it's a football game. And once you sign up for one team, then you have to defend that team until death. You, you're not allowed, and if you, if you don't, then you're a traitor. And people are allowed to point at you and, and say mean things at, you know, when they're, when they're hanging out together. So, in this football game, 
open source right now uh, without doing an exact count feels like it has it, it has some some advantage over the other team because i mean you can go to work oftentimes and bring your own laptop running linux should i say oftentimes or should i say sometimes sometimes you can sometimes install open source uh, office suite on your laptop at work and and use it sometimes maybe so uh, and and companies as i've observed in the previous episode episode, and I won't belabor this because I did a whole episode on it, companies are subject to open source. And by that, I mean they are making open source, they are using open source, and they have to play by the rules of open source to some degree. And by they have to, I mean they kind of have to, not really. All laws are just made up, so it's really just a threat-based system. And if you have enough money, most laws don't apply anyway, so do you really have to? But they are, for whatever reason. They're, they're, many of them are playing by the rules of open source. And they're usually trying to bend those rules and make them fit into their own objectives, because that's how games are played. And so it feels a little bit weird. My point here isn't to reiterate the last episode. It is to paint a picture of what, op- of what the open source competition is. That's the game open source is playing. What I didn't mention in the previous episode, because I did mean for it to be specifically about open source, the big open source question. What I didn't mention was this other contender, this other person with a this this other player with with a um w- with stakes in the game, and that is free software, capital F, capital S, free software, not not the zero dollar software that the word free implies, but the concept of liberated software, software liberated or free from constraint. This is a word that I used to quite like, or a term rather, free software, that I used to quite like because of its distinguishing, because it, because it was distinguished from open source. You couldn't say free software and get it confused with open source. Well, you can, but, it, but it, it, it's its own thing, right? It's its own brand. Unfortunately, it's a useless brand. The word free software, the phrase free software, doesn't mean anything to most people. Even if you explain to them, not free as it, what's the phrase? Not free as in speech, but free as in beer. No, not free, not free as in in beer, but free as in speech or something like that. I mean, even when you explain that to someone, they don't understand the ramifications or the implications of that statement itself. So I don't, it's not that useful. I mean, neither, for the record, is open source. Even if you explain to someone, oh, open source is software that's developed by lots of people because they can all see and contribute to the code. Okay, big deal, great. Give me the application, you know, so most people don't understand the implications of, of anything on a computer. But free software, it w- it, it's always been a tricky term. And, and honestly, I, I almost feel like it would have been better to use a non-descriptive term, which I, it pains me to say that because, because I, I get it. Like, you do, I, I prefer descript- descriptive terms. Self-descriptive terms is great. That's what language is for. And, and open source attempts to get there. It really does. And I, and I almost think that free software, because that word free is so prone to misunderstand, to, to being misunderstood, it almost would have been better to just say, eh, it's GNU. What, what, what is GNU? Oh, well, now let's talk about what GNU is. Free software, that term, doesn't inspire the, the question, what's free software? It inspires an assumption, a silent assumption. Free software, got it, zero dollars. I like that as well, but that's not what I was talking about. So anyway, whatever it's called, right? The Free Software Foundation exist. And it, I believe, has defined a win condition for a very long time. And the win condition for free software is that all software is free. Like all software. All the software in the world is available to share, to modify, to share your modifications, to study, to reuse for any purpose. That's the win condition. The Free Software Foundation, presumably, like it expects to be a foundation until that is a reality. Now you can you can sit back and think, well that that's a completely unreasonable expectation. Like or or rather a complete complete unrealistic win condition. We will never reach that point. And to some degree that's true. But also I think that's true of practically anything. I mean, if your goal is to go chop down a tree, I guess I guess you'll you can achieve that. Once you've done it, you've done it. 
But I mean, in the real world, the a goal that you set, once you reach it, then your new job is no longer to reach that goal, it's to maintain that goal. And that's the problem with, or the, the opportunity for free software. Once we reach the, the reality, the unlikely reality, that all software is just open, you know, open for everyone to use, then we would still have to, we would still, the FSF would still want to, to exist in order to preserve that state. So why is the win condition for literally everything to be free software? Is that a useful win condition? It doesn't seem realistic. But that is the the win condition for the FSF. I don't know that it's written down in such in such terse language anywhere. But I mean, if you read Richard Stallman's expectations and goals and and listen to his talks, that's what he has said. I mean, he has said that that what he wants, that what he intended when he got all of this stuff started back in 1983. I mean, maybe not initially in '83. I think in '83 he just wanted a printer to work or something like that. But I mean, like you know, if what what he started down the path of was, yes, all software is developed out in the open, and it is licensed for other people to reuse. He has no economic designs. Uh, he, in fact, if anything, he may have vaguely capitalistic designs. I mean, he, he's, he has gone on record several times saying that he's not in favor of sort of tearing down the, the, the business sort of the the whole system of of business by any means what he wants is is a world where software is freely available for study and for reuse and for modification even within the current system and this is really this is an interesting thing because i think a lot of people in that football team kind of mentality of where it's 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 this against that the the idea that that you could introduce a concept and and not have it be a competition is it doesn't sit well with us human a lot of us humans you know we 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 need there to be we need the game we need the thing in opposition so that we can sort of break on through but with free software in theory you can introduce the concept of this is open source this is free software and you can drop it in to an existing system and and i think that's been proven i think that's what open source has proven i think open source has successfully demonstrated for the past at least 10 years but i mean arguably 30 40 years but but at least the last 10 years right if we say we we reached the wind condition of open source within the last decade or or about a decade ago then then i think it's demonstrated pretty well that you can have your cake and eat it too you can have your open source code but also have the money circulating around it and that's that's significant because i think a lot of people still think well you can't have open source and have money be involved it doesn't work that way now i'm not an economist i'm not a business person i never took a a course on on finances or anything like that so i don't pretend to even i i don't even want to go down the theoretical paths of of all the different ways money could still be involved in a system where all the source code was just out there for everybody but i'm going to leave it up to to you dear listener to imagine all the different ways that could happen whether it's just a, a system whereby once the software falls out of support it becomes open source the way that id games used to do for a long time or the way that blender did um and and then what was it godot in a uh, game engine has done recently all of these examples are you know perfectly realistic perfectly valid examples of of one way to to, to do it. There are other examples. There's the mythical Red Hat example, the mythical Seuss example, the mythical canonical example, all of which are, are shaky and, and, and maybe you don't like them and maybe you do like them and maybe you like this about them but not that about them and so on. All the different ways to make, to, to still have your little, your, your business set up, but just to have source code be available. In my, in my completely uneducated and, you know, just sort of thought exercise imaginings i i could see that happening right i mean people love convenience too much for for the source code of an application to elude you to to elude the the clutches of the people who really 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 like money and you know i i, I think i do often probably naively believe that more people than 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 probable would just pay for things because it's like sort of like 
the way to support the system that you are depending upon. I mean, in other words, I have an awareness, for example, maybe you do too, dear listener, I have an awareness that people in this current system have to work on things for those things to exist. And so if I'm in a position where I have money and can pass some of that money over to them, so that they can continue to do that thing that I like, then I'll do that voluntarily. Like, they don't really even have to ask me. I mean, they have to give me a button on their website where I can contribute. And I have a limit. I can't contribute to everything I enjoy. But there's a lot of stuff that I enjoy, and there's a lot of stuff that I contribute to one way or the other. In my mind, like, I think that could be, that would be a model. Now, I understand, though, that that's probably not the model that people who expect a $15 billion revenue a year or a quarter um, that increases every single quarter. I mean, I understand that that that's not sustainable. But then again, I don't know that the 15 billion every quarter with with increased growth from now until eternity is sustainable either. So I, I think I'm not convinced that our current system is quite as finely tuned as we would sometimes try to make it seem. Either way, though, I think free software, I think there's an argument based on the, the, the past at least 10 years of open source, I think free software could be introduced into a system without breaking that system. It would require adjustment, I understand that, but I think it could still work. And frankly, I think it has to work. We're the ones designing these systems. The world doesn't have to work the way that it works, at least outside of like natural processes. But, you know, the, the, the civilization that we've created, we've designed that. And it hasn't been designed by, at one moment, I mean, it's it's an evolutionary process, and we've gotten here through a lot of choices that a lot of people who are very, very dead now have made. I understand that, and like understanding that there's no uh, centralized committee of what open source wants, as I said in the previous episode, there is no we in open source. There's no we in our civilization, really. It's it's a thing that is bigger than than all of us, and we're all creating it. But I think we are continuing to embrace systems that are based around computers. Like, computers aren't going anywhere. Computation is not slowing down. It's really, really important. And for that reason, computers and computing is really as, as essential as, like, paper and pen. Like, it's, it's that base level kind of equipment now. Which, I mean, it seems kind of crazy to say that, because, I mean, they are expensive. There are people who, who can't afford a new computer right now and who would really, really like one. There are people who don't have a phone in their pocket and, and would prefer that they did. Other people have a phone in their pocket and wish they didn't. But we've got this system that we've designed that's based around computation, and so it is, it's vital that, the, that the, the means by which we compute is delivered as free software. Now, it doesn't have to be. I mean, I say it's vital, I mean it's urgent. It doesn't really have to be free software. I mean, we can see that because right now it isn't. But as we continue to go down this path of heavy computation, ubiquitous computation, I think we would all benefit from it being free software. And I think the win condition for that is that everything is just developed as free software. Everything's just open source. It seems like a lofty goal. It seems unrealistic. I don't see how it could possibly happen. And yet, that has to be the goal. It doesn't have to be a militant goal, but it needs to be a goal. It needs to be something that we're working towards, that we're promoting, that we're reinforcing every single day. What reinforcing means, of course, is, is kind of fuzzy. I mean, what, what does that mean? I will never be seen to use non-free software. Well, great, then no one using non-free software will ever know that you exist because you're not on their platforms. They're, you're not in their space. I will never help anyone get non-free software up and running. Well, well, great, but then you're you're not helping someone who's asking you for help. You know, there are all these sort of like questions of of how far do I go? What is how much is too much? What what do I need to do? What's my moral obligation? All these other big questions that you kind of start to ask when you start to think about, you know, software in terms of like, oh, we need to change the world. I mean, that's a lofty thing, right? I mean, that's that's really kind of borderline like movie kinds of stuff. Like, this isn't the Death Star that we're up against. This is just real life, and all I'm saying is that software should be 
developed such that it is free software. It'll take a long time to get there. Uh, But then again, like 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, when people were talking about open source, they probably would have said things like, Microsoft would never embrace open source. I mean, (laughs) that's going to take a while. At least 100 years. Well, I mean, apparently we got there in like 30 to 40 years, although Microsoft has not released Windows as an open source product yet, so have they really embraced open source? Have we really won? Anyway, you get the idea. So, the the question is, what's the win condition? Well, the win condition has to be unreasonable. It has to be something that we're going to be striving for for a long time. Because otherwise, what are we striving for, right? I mean, there's just, I don't know, we got to do something. Well, if we have to do something, then we may as well go for broke, go for something really, really lofty. And that is, free software needs to be the default. It needs to stop being a competition. No more football games. That's just a beautiful statement, sort of on its own, outside of my my analogy. But anyway, um, no more football game uh, frameworks. You know, it, it doesn't have to be open source versus closed source because that shouldn't be a question anymore. The open source and the closed source, that's irrelevant because it's all free software. I mean, in this imaginary future utopia that I'm talking about. That's that's the win condition. Outside of open source, a little bit above it, there's free software, and that needs to be what we're going for. Will it ever happen? I don't know. Does it need to happen? Yeah, it kind of does. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open We've lost Earth contact completely.